Hey, today in the Scottsdale podcast, we are going to hear a message from Pastor Phil Ortigo entitled Before Christmas. This message is looking at the significance of God's providence throughout history to make way for the birth of our Savior, Jesus. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scottsdale Baptist Church. So glad that you're able to be here today to join us. My name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here. If you're a first-time guest, so happy to have you. Those of you watching us online, welcome. And we are now officially in the Christmas season, aren't we? Somebody asked us the other day, are, are, are you people at Scotts Hill a bunch of Scrooges? Why? Because you don't have any decorations on the stage. Well, we finished the Revelation series. We've got our trees up. We've got the, the whatever this is called um, on the front. It looks beautiful. We've got all of this ready, and now we're in the throes of Christmas season, especially since it's so Christmassy outside, right? And so, I, I, and I love everything about Christmas. I, I love the lights. Chris and I went to Mike's farm the other night, Thursday night in 65 degree weather. That was cool. Um, I, I love the presents. I love trying to figure out what we're going to get the kids and get each other. And I'll have a story about that next week for you on one of my longtime dreams of a gift and how that's coming to fruition. And then, of course, I love the music of Christmas. I mean, I love Christmas music. I mean, you can check my Spotify account. It's all Christmas music, Christmas jazz, Christmas piano, Christmas classics. I just love it. And many of you love it too, because you've been doing it since Thanksgiving evening. Some of you started your Thanksgiving Christmas and you, you've been listening to it. Some of you, the day after Halloween, you started Christmas music. The others of you, when Cracker Barrel started doing it in July, man, you've been on board. And some of you, you know all the Christmas music. Now, we all have our favorites, don't we? We all have our favorites of Christmas music and, and, and they're all the classics. Uh, um, I went and I Googled the top 25 most popular Christmas songs. I was surprised to see that number 20 was uh, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. If Grandma would have invited me to her farm, we'd be eating that reindeer on Christmas Day. But, that, and, and that's not really one of those songs that I, it's kind of funny, but it doesn't really mean much. So I, I listened to all the top 25 Christmas songs and I want to see how well you know your Christmas music. So we're going to take a little test this morning. It's going to be a, a multiple choice test. I'm going to have the question first. Then I'm going to give you the three different answers. Don't shout out an answer until all three are there. And we'll see how well you're doing. We just have three of these questions, okay? So here's the first one. This song came in at number 22 and was written in 1946 and was made famous by Perry Como. Was it Have a Holly Jolly Christmas? Was it Jingle Bells? Or was it It's Beginning to Look a Light Like Christmas? What do you say? Shout it out. Jingle Bells. Jingle Bells. Don't be singing out what you don't know. Don't know who that was. Secondly, here's another one. This song came in at number three, was written in 1949, and was made popular by Gene Autry. Was it Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Winter Wonderland, or Little Drummer Boy? <laughs> Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is right. Now, the number one song of all time. 
This one was written on a beach in July of 1942 and was made popular by Bing Crosby. Was it the Christmas song, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire, uh, I'll Be Home for Christmas, or White Christmas? White Christmas is the answer. He could have written that yesterday, in fact. But you know, the interesting thing about all the, these Christmas songs are hardly any of them have anything to do with Christmas, don't they? When you listen to them, they sing about all kinds of things, but it really doesn't have anything to do with the meaning of what Christmas is all about. So I Googled the top five religious Christmas songs, okay? And I'm going to start from number five, work our way down to number one, and see how you feel about these. Number five, do you hear what I hear? I have some major theological implications with that song. But number four, the little drummer boy. Number three, away in the manger. Number two, oh, holy night. What will you say number one is? Number one, silent night. Silent night. That song first appeared in 1818 in a little town called Ubendorf, Austria. And it appeared that night in a Christmas Eve midnight mass for the first time it had ever been sung. The composers were two men, the associate pastor of the church, Joseph Moore. His music director, Franz Xavier Gruber, together wrote the song, put the music together, and that night they introduced it to that little congregation in Austria. The organ was broken, so they couldn't use the organ. So Father Joseph took out his guitar and in an acoustical setting, they sang that song for the first time. Since that time in 1818, that song has been translated into hundreds of languages. And every December it is sung in small villages in the Andes to the huge cathedrals in Rome. Silent Night. And I love this song because it takes us back to what Christmas is really about. You know it, remain seated, and sing it with us as we do two verses of Silent Night. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, Jesus, Lord, at thy 
I love that song because that song really reminds us of what Christmas is about. It was on a silent night in a little town called Bethlehem, which was really a shepherd's town, where God decided at that moment, that evening, that he will infiltrate the world, that his very son would take on human flesh, that he who was infinite became finite, he who was spirit became touchable. He who was invincible became breakable. And he showed up in the neighborhood of those residents of Bethlehem on that evening. But Christmas is not about a silent night. In fact, Christmas is about 400 years of silent nights being interrupted. 146,000 silent nights when God shows up. You might say, what are you talking about? Let me explain. The Bible is broken up into two sections. There's the Old Testament, which ends with the book of Malachi, and there's the New Testament, which begins with the book of Matthew. 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament, 66 books in all. And right between Malachi, where the Old Testament ends, and where Matthew begins in your Bible and mine, there's a single sheet, one page. It's not very thick. That's all that separates the Old Testament from the New Testament. But in reality, that page represents 400 years of silent nights. 400, 146,000 silent nights are in this one page. You see, for it was during this period that there were no revelations given by God to men. It was during this period that the prophets were no longer speaking. It was during this period that we see that there were no visions, there were no appearances of angels, nothing. God went silent. And the question is, what was he doing during those 400 years? Where did he go? Was he so frustrated with humanity that he took a step back and said, I'm going to disengage until my son is born into the world? Did God go on a vacation? Did God just leave us to ourselves? What was he doing during those 400 years where we do not hear a single word from him? And you know, those questions are pretty significant. And because many of you may even be feeling some of those questions as well. Maybe it's been a long time since you felt the presence of God in your own life. Maybe you've been praying and seeking him and it seems like it's been years and years and years that he has just been silent Maybe you've gotten to the point where you've even asked the question and that question is, does he even care? Does he, does he even know that I'm here? Your heart has been broken over so many issues and there is the tendency to make a tragic mistake to think that he is not here. If there's a bottom line for this message this morning, here it is, that when God is silent, 
it does not mean he is absent. When God is silent, it doesn't mean that he's absent. In fact, there are many times when God is silent, he's doing a great work in us and around us. When we feel the silence of God, it forces us to kind of lean into him a little bit more. When I feel the silence of God, it may cause me to seek to discern his voice among all the noise of the world. It's in those times where God puts me in that crucible where he does some of his finest work. And when God is silent, he is always about doing his work. In fact, when we come to this issue, there really are two questions that we should ask in the midst of this. What is God doing in the silence? And secondly, what am I to do when God seems to be silent? What is he doing and what is God calling me to do when I sense that he's distant, that he's far? Well, we want to look at these two questions this morning, and I want us to be, answer these as we can see. Number one, what is God doing in the silence? I can tell you what God is not doing. God is not on vacation. God is not taking a break. God is always behind the scenes. He's always working and directing all things after the counsel of his good pleasure. And one of the things that we can know as children of God is that when God seems to be silent, he is never absent. I love what David wrote in Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. He says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he keeps Israel. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You hear what's happening? He's saying, listen, the Father who keeps you, who has you in his grasp, sees everything about you. He knows every tear that falls on your pillow. He knows every question of your heart. He knows every brokenness of your life. He knows every anxiety. He knows all the things that we're going through. There's never a time he is not aware. Even though he might be silent, he is not absent. So what is God doing? What was God doing during this intertestamental period? What was God doing when there are no revelations, when when we hear no voices from God? In this 400 years of silent nights, 146,000 silent nights, what was God up to? Well, we know the answer to that, and we don't know the answer from the intertestamental period, but we know the answer because God already told us what he is doing. God already told us what he was going to do. That God was preparing the world for the birth of his son. That God was preparing the world for the death and the resurrection of his son. That God was preparing the world for the advancement of the kingdom of God spread throughout the earth. And God is preparing the world for the return of his son. He already gives us the perfect picture of what he was doing. And he gave us this picture 600 years before Jesus was born. What was he up to? I want to take a different approach this morning as we look at Christmas. And I want us to go to the book of Daniel. And so take your Bibles, open to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can take the one in front of you, you can use your devices, or you can simply look at the screen. Because in Daniel chapter 2, God tells us everything that he is going to do all the way to the end of humanity. In one simple chapter 
with one simple dream. Now, if you've got your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2, the thing that happens in this is it's about Daniel and his friends. You remember Daniel and his three friends, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken captive from the tribe of Judah, from the southern portion of the nation of Israel, and they were carried off to Babylon in 605 B.C. King Nebuchadnezzar came in, and he took these captives. These four young men were among the elite that were taken captive. As a matter of fact, they were so brilliant that they were trained and they were put in leadership positions of authority. And all of them were considered to be wise men. Well, in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in this dream, it scares him so badly that he calls all of his wise men together and he says, listen, I have a dream and I need you to interpret the dream for me. But I don't trust you and I believe you're going to tell me a lie. So I'm not going to tell you the dream. Here's your task. You must tell me what I dreamt and you must tell me what is the meaning of this dream. And then he gives this. He says, if you can't tell me my dream and you can't tell me the meaning, I'm going to rip you limb from limb and burn your house down. Now, if you're being ripped from limb to limb, you probably really don't care what's happening to your house. But Nebuchadnezzar is a ruthless guy. And Daniel and his four friends were considered to be counselors as well. And they were in on this. So Daniel brings his four friends together. They said, we must pray and ask God to give us the revelation of the dream and the interpretation of the dream. And God gives to Daniel the dream. And he gives to him the interpretation of the dream. And Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and he tells him what the dream was and the interpretation. And what we see here is what is God setting up for the rest of humanity. Here's what happens. Verses 31 and following, chapter 2. Joseph, um, Joseph, Daniel is saying to the king, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer on the threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth um, with its presence. So it's, that's, the, that's the dream. So Nebuchadnezzar is grateful. He says, thank you for the dream. Now, what does it mean? And so Daniel begins to tell him what the dream means. And in this dream, here's what we see. We see what God is doing before the birth of Jesus Christ, what he does to set up the birth of Jesus Christ, and what he's going to do until the return of Jesus Christ. So it all has to do with God breaking the silence of those 400 years. So, so what is he doing? Well, this particular artist has drawn this rendition of the dream. And by the way, all historians agree with what Daniel lays out that in 
history, there have been four major powers, and from those four major powers, all other governments of the world flow from those four. All historians agree with this. In fact, many historians go to the book of Daniel, and it confirms so many things that they're learning. So what is the dream? He says, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the gold, you're the head. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar came in, and he took over the known world. Babylon was an exquisite city known for its gold and for its culture and for its math and its sciences and its philosophy. It was a very cultured world. And for 66 years, King Nebuchadnezzar ruled the known world. He is the gold. But then Daniel says, there's going to come an inferior kingdom after you. It'll be silver. And the chest and the arms represent the Medes and the Persians. 66 years later, in 539 BC, the Medes and the Persians came together as one army. Darius, the leader of the Medes, and then we see that Cyrus was the leader of the Persians. The two arms represent two nations coming against one. And so they merged together and they overthrew Babylon. Now here's what's really amazing about this. We already knew that this would happen 140 years before this ever took place. In fact, not only did we know that the Medes and the Persians were going to overthrow Babylon 140 years earlier, but we also know that the name of the leader would be Cyrus. How do we know that? Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. God had already predicted 140 years before this event that his anointed one by the name of Cyrus would go and overthrow and become the ruler of the world. Now you might be thinking, now come on, there had to be more than one Cyrus in the Bible. There had to be more than one Cyrus during biblical times, right? Yeah, probably so. I checked the status last year on the census for 2021. There were uh, many people born by the name of Cyrus last year. The name Cyrus ranked 700 among all most popular names. That means about three people were named Cyrus last year. So people have the name of Cyrus. So how do we know that this was the same Cyrus? Go back to chapter 44 of Isaiah, verses 27 through 28 who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. You might say, what does that mean? Well, you have to know something about how Babylon was overthrown. In the center of Babylon was the river Euphrates, right through the center of the city. And on both sides, this beautiful city was built on either side of the Euphrates. When Cyrus came to attack Babylon, you know what he did? He diverted the river and dried it up. And with the water supply gone, he marched right under the gates in the riverbed and took over everything. This is 140 years before the event even happened. And it gets even better. Who was it that rebuilt the temple and its foundations in Jerusalem? It was Cyrus. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 2, 
Here's what Cyrus says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Now, here's the picture. God is working. And even in the times where you think he's silent, he's behind the scenes and he's accomplishing his good pleasure and his purpose. 140 years before these events even took place, God had ordained that these things would happen. And while people in that day are wondering, what is going on in our world? What is going on around us? All of these dynasty changes, what's going to happen to us? God is in the background saying, I've got this. I am working everything to my good pleasure. Now, when you come to the book of Malachi, the Persians have been in charge. Corruption has gone through the roof. Instability of the nation is beginning to crumble. People mistrust the government. There are riots in the streets. There's crime that's being like nothing you've ever seen. Tribe is fighting against tribe. Ideology against ideology. Does that sound kind of familiar today? And the world is crumbling. It was unsafe to travel anywhere. And there is no way that the birth of Jesus Christ, the world that took place in the days of Malachi, were totally different from the days of Jesus. When we close out the Old Testament and the curtain comes down, the world is a mess. And silence begins. But what is he doing? He's working his plan. Let's go back to the image. Here's what he's doing. We already know. In Babylon is on the throne by the Medo-Persians. But then we see the, the, the bronze waste in the thighs. You know what that is? In about 330 BC, a man by the name of Philip of Macedon united all the nations of Greece. And he formed a tremendous army. And during that time, he charged his 20-year-old son with conducting the raids against Persia. And that 20-year-old man was known as Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great began to take over the known world. After one campaign after another, he was destroying. And by the time he was 33 years old, he had controlled the entire world. The Greeks were in charge. Alexander the Great drank himself to death at the age of 33 because he was bored, because he had conquered the known world, and there wasn't anything left for him to do. But the one thing that Alexander the Great wanted above all things, he wanted a common language that would unite all of humanity. He wanted a common language that would go between tribes and factions and that this language be used in legal settings for documents and any kind of communication and for trade. And before he died, he was able to make sure that there was one known language and that language was Greek. Now the whole world since the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 could now communicate to one another where they could not do that before. Then after Alexander the Great dies, then his kingdom is divided up in four sections among his four generals. It begins to collapse and the Romans come in, the legs of iron, and they take over in 168 BC. And what did the Romans do? They did a lot of things, a lot of immoral things. But some of the things they did was this. They brought about a peace that the world had never known. 
The Pax Romana is what it's called. And during the Pax Romana, it was the first time that people could travel from country to country and be protected against bands of hoarders or marauders or gangs because the Roman Empire was everywhere. The Roman Empire was making sure there were no kinds of disputes and riots and wars and rumors of wars. For the first time, the world had peace to be able to travel. But the second thing they did was this. They increased the trade routes all across the world. They built highways and interstates connecting countries like had never been connected. Trade routes by boat, trade routes by land. And for the first time, the world has seen three specific accomplishments during that intertestamental period. What were they? The three important developments. Number one, there's a common language. Greek language. Everyone could communicate with everyone else. Secondly, there was Roman peace. You could travel across the world like never before. Thirdly, there's improved transportation system. You could get anything anywhere because of what the Romans had done. The world had never seen this or known this. And this was the world that Jesus is born in. For the first time, people could travel it was because of the Romans' government's control that they had to go to Bethlehem for the census, thus fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Because of the peace of Rome, they could travel around, and like when they ran from Herod, they made their way to Egypt because of the interstate systems that were created there. They were able to get to Egypt with ease and protection and safety and fulfilling scripture. Because of all that was happening in this world, it set everything up for the birth of Jesus to even the death of Jesus. The Romans brought in the most cruel form of punishment and execution that the world has ever known, crucifixion. And if Jesus had not been born in that time, the, mo the mode for execution was stoning. And you can see what God is doing in the midst of it. And then what we see is this that the stone that was uncut with human hands represents Christ and that he would destroy all the nations of the world eventually. And what would take place? The kingdom of God would manifest itself everywhere. So what is God doing in the silence? He's doing his work. He's accomplishing all things and setting the world up for the birth of Jesus Christ that had never happened before. We even have an eyewitness of this. Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's the thing. Never make the mistake. God's silence for his absence. Never mistake his silence for his absence. You see, even when you think he is silent, God is constantly working to accomplish all things for his pleasure and our good. So, it takes us to the second question. What am I to do when God seems silent? What am I to do? Let me give you three things that we do. When it seems that God is silent in our lives, three things that we're called to do. Number one, when you feel God's silence, 
Search your heart. Search your heart. This is so important. When I feel that God is distanced, when I feel like there's no dis, there's a disconnect, when I feel like God is not engaging with me and there's something that's separating me from him and it seems to be dark, the first thing I have to do is search my heart. Why is that so important? David writes this in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there are any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Listen, the first thing we need to do is search our hearts. Why? Because our hearts have the tendency to wander, don't they? Our hearts have the propensity to find ourselves in places where we ought not be. Our hearts can lead us to times of rebellion and disobedience to God. And you know that it's when I'm in those times of rebellion and disobedience where the fellowship with the Father is broken. It's when those times when I want to be in charge of my life and I sit at my little tiny throne and I sit on my little tiny throne in my little tiny world and I want to call the shots that there's a distance and what happens is it quiets the voice of God and his convictions in my life because sin breaks fellowship with God. If you're walking through a time and it seems to be dark, the first thing to do is ask, Lord, what's going on in me? And you know why we don't like to ask that question? Because we really don't want the answer, do we? And we don't want the answer because it might mean that I've got to give up some little pet sin. I might need to alter my life. I might need to die to me. And yet if I refuse to search my own heart, I can walk into stages that are darker and darker and darker as the years go by. When it's silent, search your heart. Be honest. Ask the Lord to reveal to you what it is. And you may search your heart and say that in my conscience, I feel like it's clear, but there still seems to be this distance. Here's the second thing. When you feel God's silence, trust his presence. Trust his presence. You know, it's really interesting that when Jesus was born, the angel breaks the silence and he speaks to Mary and Joseph. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, Jesus' birth was a supernatural birth. He was born of a woman, a virgin, and we believe that, and we, we unapologetically at Scotts Hill believe that Jesus was virgin born. We believe that. Without the involvement of a man in Mary's life, she was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit and she conceived. And Jesus was born of her. Now that's a miracle. But let me tell you what's even outstanding and maybe even more outstanding is that God would be with us. His name is Emmanuel, which means with us which means he walks with us, he dwells with us, he knows us, he understands us, he feels our pain, he understands what we suffer, he understands the doubts and the questions and everything that goes with the brokenness of humanity. He is there. He has moved in your neighborhood. Isn't that wonderful? 
And you know, the first words to describe Jesus is the name Emmanuel, God with us. And you remember that before he ascends into heaven, what he tells his disciples, I will be with you. How long? Always. So there are times when you're in this silence, in this period, trust his presence that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Things are tough. Emmanuel, your pain is heavy. Emmanuel, you don't understand what's happening in your life. Emmanuel, you don't know what you're going to do tomorrow. Emmanuel, God is with me. And no matter what I encounter, no matter what pain I feel, no matter what questions I have in the depths of my heart, God doesn't leave me. In the midst of the darkness, he is there. And here's the third thing. When you feel God's silence, read his word. Oh, I can't say this enough. Read his word. Why? His word is his breath. His word is his voice. And so there's a reality that says this, that no matter how dark it may sound, no matter how far God may be, when I read his word, I hear his voice. I sense his presence. I trust his word. Now let's be honest. Sometimes when we're in the dark, we don't want to read God's word. We feel like he's abandoned us and the enemy will convince us that we don't have time for that. We don't need that. And the enemy knows that if he can remove us from the word of God in our lives, then he's going to remove us from the source of truth and the very voice of Almighty God. Because every time I pick up the word of God with 66 books, everything I read is him speaking to me. Every bit of it. And so what do I do? I don't push myself away from the source that is going to guide me and comfort me and give me truth. I love the way a psalmist says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So let me remind you of this again. Never mistake God's silence with his absence. Some of you may be going through a difficult time. Do you know that Christmas time is one of the most discouraging times for so many people in our culture? And coming off of the pandemic and everything that everybody has faced this last year, there's more depression and anxiety in our culture than ever before. And many people are feeling that God is distant from this. No, no, no. He is here. He is here. And no matter what you go through, he is walking with you. He is working in your life for his glory and for your good. Search your heart. Lean into his presence and trust his word. If you're a child of God, these are comforting words for us and as we go into the Christmas season, everything that we see before us in these days is what God has begun from eternity past, and he is continuing until the Lord Jesus returns. And he's calling us to walk with him. If you're here this morning and you're not a child of God, 
I want you to know that the Lord Jesus is inviting you today into a relationship with him. He came for you. He came to suffer on your behalf. He died an excruciating death on a Roman cross that God prepared for such a time as that. He rose from the dead and his validation of everything that he has ever claimed to be and at every word he has ever said, you can trust him. And today, today, in this day, he is inviting you into a relationship with him. So as we go through this joyous time of this season, this goes far beyond Christmas, that he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He is true to his word, and he will accomplish his good pleasure. We lean into him. And as we go into Christmas, let us rest in him of the fulfillment of his indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you for the reminder that there's never been a time when you have not been orchestrating the events of the world for your pleasure and for our good. And Father, as we recognize this morning that you are always here, that we can rest in you, we can trust in you, and we acknowledge you during this time. Father, may you stir our hearts even more and more as we move towards Christmas Day. And as we celebrate with our families, may it be a reminder of all the things that you have been doing and the things that you're going to continue to do until the Lord Jesus returns and that we give praise and honor and glory to you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And I encourage you to come back next time as we hear the after Christmas message. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.